Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you for good rest. Help me, Lord, uh, to be sensitive to your promptings. Lord, I pray for the Spirit of God to be upon each one here. Lord, that you would truly do something in our hearts. Deposit what you desire. We just invite the Holy Spirit to come, who is the Spirit of truth, and takes the words on a page and makes them real in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Was that Pastor Mike's uh, cell phone? Okay. All right. So we have our cell phones incapacitated. Has anyone ever had one go off in a movie? They're really pretty strict about that, aren't they? Uh, Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We left Paul last night breathing fire. Stephen's martyrdom unleashed a whole other level of persecution. The reason for that is Paul realized this is the quality of heart this movement is producing. These people are sold out. They are committed to the laying down of their lives. And so he's alarmed because from Paul's viewpoint, his entire life is being threatened. Everything he holds dear is over, basically. And he can't handle it because his identity is in what he does rather than who he is. How about if we say that again? Now, that just came out. Now, we're on a roll already. That'll preach. Many people live that way. Their identity is what they do rather than who they are. But that's not the gospel. The gospel starts with who you are first and then what you do. So we pick up our story in Acts 9, verses 1 and 2. And heaven has released the Holy Spirit as we finished last night. Go get him. Now look at what it says in verse 1 and 2. Saul still breathing. In other words, he never stopped. He's on a mission. Now the Bible says in the Gospels, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this is what's in his heart. Now he doesn't believe he's an enemy of God, obviously. He actually believes he's serving God. He's defending God. He's defending God's way of whatever he perceives to be truth. And if you want to flip, hold your spot in Acts 9, just flip to Romans 10. Later on, when Paul uh, writes Romans, this is very autobiographical. This is who he was. So he totally understands his fellow religious pharisaical Jews. He understands what's going on in their heart. Look at verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. That's not in question. They're very zealous. They're very sincere. Uh, But not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. There, in those two verses, capture the essence of the futility of religion. Not responding to the only way to get righteous before God, which is Paul's gospel, Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross. You 
relentlessly pursue a self-righteousness through good works, good intentions, and the depth of zeal doesn't counteract the false path a person is on. Do you understand? There's going to be a lot of people in hell who are really committed and zealous and sincere in their pursuits of righteousness. But it was all in vain. I think that's one of the great heartbreaks of heaven and sad truths is that is that reality. So anyway, Paul is, this is what he's doing back to Acts 9, 1 and 2. He's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. He goes to the high priest and he asks for letters in order to go to Damascus and bring him back bound to Jerusalem. Now I like this because heaven looks down. Here is a man, we talked about what last night and what Paul's become is, which is apostle of grace, primarily to the Gentiles. He's 180 degrees walking opposite of God, walking opposite of his purpose. When the Lord gets a hold of Paul, he's going to totally return him. And rather than have documents that bind people to Jerusalem, Paul's going to write future documents that will release people from the bondage that Jerusalem represents. Somebody say, way to go, God. I mean, that's true for all of our lives, where we can seem at one point so contrary or off course, but by the sovereign grace of God, he can turn us around in a moment. And the key word here is, and suddenly, and suddenly, if you look at... uh, uh, verse 3, and it came about as he is approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven impacts Paul. Now you notice in your notes, here's where Paul is apprehended. He's arrested by God. A sovereign work of grace. He's dead in his sin. He's actually a child of wrath, not realizing it. And he's apprehended by God. He's knocked off his horse, and he's impacted by this light. Now, to your right there in your notes, I want you to write this down. When that light hit Paul, it brought revelation. Here's what it brought. Number one, that light revealed the truth of Jesus Christ. He is shocked and stunned to find out that, in fact, Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, and who the early church was claiming to be. Number two, the light revealed almost instantly to Paul the inadequacy of his religion. He was bankrupt before God. He was not righteous. He was, in fact, unrighteous. He was laid bare. So that light reveals the truth of Christ And the inadequacy of his religious way of life. Number three, that light also exposes to Paul that what was actually driving him was to really know God. It was almost a deep desire to actually know the Lord, even though he thought he knew the Lord. And so this light suddenly impacts Paul, now let's go down to verse 5, and this is, now we're talking about apostolic conversion. This is what happens when a person really gets born again. Uh, 
My wife and I have four children. When our four children were born, I was there each one. It is undeniable. When a child is born, there are undeniable signs that there is life in that child. If there, those signs are not there, we can call it a stillbirth or we can call it a non-birth. I don't know what you would call it, but it's, it's, it's not really an organic, supernatural, something really happens to an individual when they are born again. It's way deeper than your head. It actually goes to the center of your heart. And your spirit is recreated. And when that happens, with our four children, there were desires. What were the desires of my children when they were born? They were incredibly hungry. They want to feed. They want, like newborn babes, to desire the sincere milk of the word. Uh, they, they want to be warm. They don't like to be cold. They like fellowship. I mean, before I was saved, to be in a church service was an endurance test. Waiting for the ball game to come. Waiting for Sunday afternoon semi-pro baseball and get drunk after the game and couldn't wait to get out of that 45-minute whatever was happening, all right? But once you get born again, you can't leave. Once you get born again, the Word of God comes alive. And so there's... there's a, I want you to write this scripture down next to Acts 9, verse 5. You can look at this later. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. I also want you to write down, next to that scripture, 1 John, just chapter 3. Because this is really important, and I want to emphasize this just for a couple minutes. I'm convinced across America there's a lot of false conversions. There's a lot of surface prayers prayed, apparently a quick decision made, an invitation even of Jesus into the heart, but there's no change. There's no new birth. Salvation is not an assent intellectually to certain truths. Salvation starts deep right about here. And you're born again. So Paul, after he deals with the Corinthian church, you know, it'll be part two, but he loves that church. And he pretty much treats them this way. All right, you're saved, but you have a lot of problems. Is it possible to be saved and still have problems? Please raise your hand with me. How about if we each raise both hands? All right. So it's, it's, we're not talking perfection here. It is possible to be born again, spirit filled, love God, had a degree of maturity and still wrestle with stuff. That's what he's dealing with in Corinth. And there's a big wrestle going on. But finally, at the end of chapter, in the, in chapter 13, 2 Corinthians, he covers one more base. And the base is, up until now, I'm treating you as a genuine believer who's got issues that need to be dealt with. But there is a line that can be crossed. And that person is not a believer dealing with issues. In fact, I don't think you're really saved. And so what he says in Corinthians 13 verse 5 is, I want you to test yourselves. And that word test is the same word for examine your hearts before you take communion. And he says, don't you realize this, that Jesus Christ is in you if you pass the test. Now, this is where I get a bit frustrated with Paul. Don't you wish he would have laid out a bit more specific what the test was? <laughs> he just says, test yourselves. 
That's why I love 1 John chapter 3 and other throughout the 1 John because John's is that there are undeniable symptoms of true life. However much you may be wrestling with certain issues over here, deep down inside, there's a reality of an encounter with Jesus Christ that culminated with what we call the new birth. And that's why the baptism of the Holy Spirit is so important after salvation because it tends to make that whole experience more real. It tends to solidify it. It tends to seal it. And so, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. And so Paul, in in verse 9, now here come the questions. Who are you, Lord? That's question number one. A person who's genuinely born again immediately has a desire, a passion, a hunger to know God. Now the word there, know, is not an intellectual word. It's actually a heart word. To experience God. To encounter God. How many love the fact that Jesus Christ is a person, not a doctrine? No, he has doctrine. But he's first a person. Here's how Paul phrases it in Philippians 3. He said, in effect, I'm paraphrasing, For 33 years I followed a system of religion rooted in self-effort. After my encounter with the living Christ the unique Son of God, the blinding light revelation that it brought, the passion of my life is to know Him. And I will forsake anything and everything that's in the way of knowing Him. And that was the number one desire for the rest of Paul's Christian experience was to know God deeper. And child of God, You will never exhaust that search. Do you understand that? When you go to heaven someday, the search will continue. The depths of God are endless. It's going to be quite an eternal quest as you continue to behold Him and as you continue to encounter Him and as you continue to be filled with Him. All right. So that's question number one. I I, I can say for 40 years... This is frequently coming out of my heart, almost daily. God, I want to know you. Here's what comes after that question. Write it down. God, I want to become your friend. I'll explain that more later in our seminar. God, I want to become your friend. I want to know you. I want to hear your heart. I want to be in your heart. I want to... Be filled with your heart. God, I want to be like David. I'm seeking your heart, not my heart. God, when my heart is in charge, I get in all kinds of trouble. But when your heart is preeminently in my life. And so Jesus reveals to Paul on the Damascus Road, Acts 9, Who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, immediately, Paul will have a switch in his heart. Up until that point, he hated the name of Jesus. He disdained that name. Now, from that day on, and it will grow, what will Paul say? In scriptures like Philippians, there is no other name given by which 
He loves the name of Jesus. From that moment on, when he hears the name of Jesus, rather than anger, comes tears. If you see someone born again, powerfully, that used to curse with the name of Jesus Christ, I guarantee you, that instantly flees. And that name becomes precious. Not a a punchline to a curse heart. And and now, if you see in your notes there, uh, who are you, Lord? Paul asked this question three times. You'll see three scriptures there. Acts 9, verse 5, Acts 22, 8 to 10, and Acts 26. Now, you don't have to turn there. But those are three scriptures that talk about the conversion of Paul. Somewhere in your notes, if you want to just make a little reference here for further reflection, there are more scriptures devoted to the conversion of Paul after the crucifixion of Jesus than any other thing in the New Testament. It's that important. Why? Because it's a pattern. It's what we call apostolic conversion reality. Write this scripture down, Colossians chapter 2, I think it's maybe verse 3 and 4. As you receive Christ, so walk in Him or so follow Him. That initial encounter with Jesus Christ. Now, in those three accounts of Paul's conversion, Acts 9 when it happens... Acts 22, Acts 26, when he testifies about his conversion, the question, who are you, God, is mentioned all three times. The other question, what would you have me to do, is only mentioned once. And I pondered that, and I said, Lord, what are you trying to say here? And there's the reality of how God looks at us. Who you are is more important to God than what you do for God. Religion always reverses that. But the gospel, who you are, precedes what you do. Now, the do is very important. That is the second great passion for every truly born-again person, is that there's an incredible desire to follow God and fulfill what God has called us to do. But in reality, it's Him doing it, through us. We are just presenting our bodies a living sacrifice surrendered as a vessel to the Lord and out of that surrender comes a flow of God's life and God's grace. It doesn't matter what you're doing. As we talked about last night, your become is different than my become. But it all brings glory to God. It all brings a testimony to the faithfulness of God. And so those are the two questions. When I get to heaven in the future, I will answer those two questions to God. When it says in Romans 14, write that scripture down, Romans 14, somewhere there in your notes, where Paul says, we will give an account. We will give an account at the judgment seat of Christ. That word account is actually a financial term. It's like the ledger is balanced, okay, a presentation of of facts. The word account is actually logos. Uh, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's the word for account. In other words, that's the character of God. When I stand before Jesus, I'm going to give an account or a presentation how much of Jesus was actually realized in this vessel. How much of my character is really his character? How much has Christ really replaced Chuck? 
How much has Chuck decreased and Christ increased? Okay? That's what I present to the Lord. Who are you, Lord? It's all about God's character. And then I will give an account for gifts, talents, used, unused, callings fulfilled, unfulfilled. I will answer the second question, what did you do? Now, it's not an issue of hell, obviously, but it is an issue of rewards. And I don't have time in this seminar to go into the whole theology of rewards, but there are rewards. It's a balance to grace. The key thing about rewards, however, is they're not religious uh, pendants that you earn. It's still you're surrendering to grace. You're yielding to grace. And you're flowing with grace. So Paul now is knocked off his horse. He can't see. He goes blind. He hears the voice and he sees Christ and he goes blind. Very significant. Remember what Jesus said to Pharisees in John chapter 10. I came that those who think they see will go blind. This is an impact. Paul is shocked. His whole world is incredibly rocked. On the one hand, he's got a growing kind of joy and excitement. On the other hand, he's scared to death to realize for 33 years he's been missing it. And so he's led by these traveling companions who hear the voice but don't see the Lord. And he's uh, given instruction. And let's look at verse 6. This is what the Lord tells him. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I want you to rise up, enter the city, And it shall be told you what you must do. Now please make note of verse 6. In your notes, it's the middle of the page. Arise, number 1. Go into the city, number 2. And it will be told you what you must do, number 3. Now this is really important for somebody who's been truly born again. Now, what happens here on this conversion encounter is Paul gets seed thoughts that he will later develop and flesh out into incredible revelation of the body. For example, when Jesus says, you are persecuting me, okay, all of a sudden a seed thought is planted in Paul. He's the only apostle who has this. Wow. Fellow believers are, in fact, the body of Christ. And if you mess with a believer, you're touching Jesus. I wish every church would get this. When you mess with a brother and sister in the Lord inappropriately, relationally with whatever, gossip, lies, betrayal, breaking of relationship, that in effect is messing with Christ to some degree. If we could really see this, the fear of God would probably come. And you see churches a whole lot more in harmony and a whole lot more tolerant of one another in the right way and flowing with forgiveness and patience and mercy and grace. Paul's the only one that sees Christ the head, we the church, his body. He will later develop that, like in 1 Corinthians. Now, the first instruction is, Paul, I want you to rise up. Now, I know literally what's going on here. Get up off the ground. And start walking. But I want you to see a spiritual prophetic thing that's happening. Later on, years later actually, when he articulates this in more of a doctrinal statement, he says, when you got born again, you were made to sit where? In heavenly places. You were made, you were raised up. 
sitting far above. Paul would be very, very committed to this. Child of God, I want you to write next to rise up, I want you to write two words, position and practice. And next to position, write the word eternal. And next to practice, write the word daily. Another word could be walk. Walk. Now, eternally positioned, you can't touch that. The day you got born again, by the grace of God, you were picked up. You were placed in Christ, who is sitting in heaven. And you were made to sit in heavenly places, positionally, forever. Say, thank you, Jesus. You are sealed by the blood. You cannot unsit yourself. Regardless of sin, regard, now obviously we're talking about a genuine conversion. Let me give you this scripture. Write it down, please. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. One of the great verses that describe, in other words, what happened that day when you got born again. You were transferred. Have you ever been transferred? Wow. Where was I transferred from? You were transferred from death to life. You were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You know what the Greek tense there is? It's called aorist tense. Don't want to bore you with Greek. But what it means in the mind of God is once and for all. Can't do it. You can't alter it. Can't cha- it's a done deal. It's a done deal. That's your eternal position. Practice is your daily walk. Your whole Christian life can be summed up in this one phrase. Your daily practice catching up with your eternal position. That's all it is. And it's an ongoing journey. Your daily walk, daily practice, catching up with your eternal position. I want you to rise up. So if you would write next to the word arise in your notes, just Ephesians 2 verse 6. Made to sit in heavenly places. Go into the city. Go into the city. Now, again, literally Damascus. But I want you to see the city that God is building. I want you to see the city that Paul also calls the body. He will realize, would you write this scripture down next to go into the city? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. The day you got saved, you were placed into the city. By the Spirit of God. Paul uses this word. You were baptized into Christ. Christ is the city. Christ is the temple. Christ is the new Jerusalem. And we are part of that. You were baptized, immersed into Christ. It's not water baptism. And it's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's the day you got born again. You were immersed into Christ. Go into the city. And then Paul, once you see yourself in the body... Once you realize you're in the family of God, in the city, in the body of Christ, number three, and it will be told you what you must do. It's in the framework of church that our destiny is fulfilled and our destiny is realized. This is not an independent from the body of Christ thing that I come into. 
Even if you're an evangelist, say, well, I minister to the world. I'm an evangelist. I know, but you're, you're sent out by the church. You're, you're still part of the church, and you're going to bring new converts into the church. So evangelism is, is defined by the body. Apostolically, prophetic. Sunday school teacher. Hey, if you're going to fulfill your Sunday school passion, you got to do it in the context of the body. Are you going to teach the kids out in the field somewhere? You know, I mean, you understand what I'm talking. Doesn't matter what your ministry is. Go into the city, and it will be told you, what you must do. So he ends up in this house and he's incredibly shaken. Let's go back to Acts. And Paul gets up, verse 8. He couldn't see anything and they bring him to Damascus and he's there three days without sight and he neither eats nor drinks. And he's just seeking God. On the one hand, really joyful. On the other hand, scared to death. His whole world's come to an end. And he's now on the verge of a new chapter opening. And he gets a vision. He gets a vision of a guy coming to him, and he actually gets a name. And he waits. Three days, three nights, fasting, waiting on the Lord. So now let's pick up our story in verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias. Now this is the second guy named Ananias. You know the first one. We don't want to go there. They carried him out, room temperature, all right, in Acts 5. This is the second Ananias. Now, I want you to write in your notes, somewhere to the left or right, I want you to write two words, vertical and horizontal. Very, very crucial in the life of Paul and in your life. Vertical and horizontal. And next to the word vertical, just write Jesus. Jesus. And when you look at your notes later on, this is going to remember stuff. All right. And next to the word horizontal, write body of Christ, body of Christ. You have a twofold relationship with Jesus Christ. It's vertical and it's horizontal. You can't just say, it's just me and Jesus. Now, your vertical relationship with Jesus Christ can never be and should never be violated. There's nobody between you and Jesus Christ. Nobody between Bob and Jesus. Uh, there aren't leaders even. This has not, well, even spouses. I mean, you are individually responsible for your individual walk before Jesus Christ. But then you have horizontal. Horizontal means you have key people that God will send to you in your life, and Jesus comes to you through different individuals To minister, encourage, help, sometimes rebuke, correct, and help you on your walk. The first individual that helped Paul, he didn't realize it at the time, of course, was Stephen. This is now the first person that's going to come to Paul as a new believer. In other words, Jesus could have just downloaded vertically, directly, everything that Ananias is also going to say. But there's something of a balance and a dynamic is that vertically you are locked into Christ, but horizontally, I still need you. I still need John Nakamas. I still need the Christ in you to help me. Now, if you ever get away from that out of balance, then you end up with with a kind of arrogant, prideful uh Jesus and I will conquer the world type thing. No, no, no. You are part of the body of Christ. So Ananias is home having a good night's sleep. It's 11 o'clock at night, and he gets awakened by God, startled. And he hears the voice of God. 
Somebody say he's probably getting excited. Can you imagine your heart beginning to pound? He hears the audible voice of God. And and I, whoa, and the Lord just called my name. I've been praying for this for years. Testimony last week at church. Somebody had an encounter with God. Now I'm having my own. All right, Lord, here I am. Here I, I want you to rise up. Wow. God's giving me specific direction. I want you to go to a street called straight. Praise God. Specific direction for my life. Finally, I'm tapping in. Flowing with the Lord. And he's so excited and his heart's pounding. And I want you to go. And there's a guy there seeking God named Saul. And the blood drained out of his face. Man, I was on such a roll. I was on such a roll. And fear hit him. Paul's reputation was well known. And immediately out of Ananias' heart comes, not faith, fear. He says, God, isn't this irony of irony? Haven't you heard? (laughs) Lord, are you unaware who this guy is? And we've been told he actually got letters to arrest us. Ananias could also say, Lord, I had a cousin in Jerusalem who's in heaven now because of that man. And everything in your body recoils at the voice of God. And here's Ananias' summary statement. I have heard from many about this man. Now, notice what he hears, what it says in your Bible. If you read that very carefully, here's what he heard. Here's what I've heard, Lord. Here's what I've heard. He's done much harm to thy saints in Jerusalem. And, Lord, here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon thy name. Is any of that unfactual? Here's the issue that he doesn't realize. It's past tense. Something's happened to that man on the road. He's not the same person. He's been born again. He's been arrested by me. You notice what the Lord does? See, my Bible, it's red letters. God doesn't even respond to his complaint. He just says, go and minister to this guy. For he is a chosen instrument of mine. I will show how much he will suffer for my name's sake. And the Bible says, and Ananias departed. You know what I love about that? There's no reaction. There's no coming back at God with another. In other words, please get this victory because this will launch you into a whole other realm of impact in this region if you can get this. The word of God to Ananias counteracted the opinions of people. When I used to pastor, I would get all this kind of feedback. You know, pastor, they say, really? Who are they? Where are they? Have you ever wondered who they are? Knowledgeable. Full of insight. Who are they? I hope to meet they someday. Maybe they'll be in heaven. Praise the Lord. Uh, When you as a church... Begin to see people, particularly the unlovely, with the eyes and heart of God, rather than what people say. They will immediately sense that. 
they will immediately discern that. And what your church will become is a magnet that draws the unlovely, the hopeless, the desperate, and you see through their mess to their potential with the eyes and the heart of God. And Ananias, I don't care what they say. Here's what I say. And so he goes. He goes. There was a guy who was a really bad alcoholic. And he really got born again saved, filled with the Spirit, and was following Jesus big time. And you know what? For whatever reason, the Lord left a big red nose that basically spoke alcoholic. He said it was really interesting to go into a gathering of God's people from place to place, even different churches. And some couldn't get past my nose. And immediately I felt a wall and a resistance. And then I would go to churches and it's like they never saw my nose. They went right to my heart. Victory, that's your call. Part of it. See through the mess and address the heart. Peter comes a total basket case in John chapter 1. You know what Jesus sees and what Jesus declares? Oh, Simon, you will be my rock. The guy over here laughing his heart out is Andrew, the brother of Peter. Are you kidding me? This guy's anything but a rock. But when I get done with him, in spite of all his mess up, in Acts chapter 2, when that church is birthed, you see a rock. And he will ultimately be crucified upside down, not deny me, he's a rock. So Ananias, he comes... And Ananias departed, and he entered the house. Now, I want you to put yourself in Paul's position. Three days, three nights, alone, world upside down, kind of afraid. Bob, I'm going to have you. Well, just go ahead and sit there. And here's Paul, okay? I'm Ananias. I come walking in. Paul hears me come walking in. Can't see me. And what does the Bible say? What version do you have here, brother? The right one. It doesn't matter. It's the right one. All right. I love it. Where am I? I, I can't see anything in here. No, no. We're right here. And Ananias departed and entered the house. Now, please notice this phrase, because this is what you want to do with people that are going to be coming to victory. And after laying his hands on him. Please catch this. Then he spoke. In other words... He embraced him. Paul begins to convulse in tears. Thinking he could be struck down, maybe killed, maybe cursed, maybe rejected. Instead, he was embraced. And then, what's the first word? Out of Ananias' mouth. Jesus Christ speaking here, by the way. 
What is it, Cindy? Brother. Brother. You know what that is? Welcome to the family. Brother. Not welcome to the faith. Welcome to the doctrine. Welcome to our belief system. Not welcome even to victory. Welcome to the family. Paul's going to explode with this. And you are blessed to this day with his revelation of adoption. Justification is a legal term. It means the courts of heaven are satisfied forever. Your penalty has been paid. Adoption is a family term. Welcome, brother, to the family. He went to a whole nother. He, he must have cried his guts out. Oh, and by the way, then he gets a prophecy. <laughs> this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight. Number one, and be filled with the Spirit. All right, now this is apostolic conversion. Three days ago he got born again. Now he's going to get the Holy Ghost. In part two of Paul, we'll go into a whole lot of death about the Spirit of God. You do not get the baptism of the Holy Spirit when you're born again. You get Jesus. Jesus is very clear about this. Whom the world cannot receive. The world can receive Christ. They cannot receive the Holy Spirit. Once you receive Christ, you're a candidate now to receive the Holy Spirit. All right. So Paul, let me pray for you. And I want you to write this scripture down. And this will be one of the landmark scriptures of Paul that he'll always pray for his converts. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. It's a culmination of revelation that explodes out of Paul's heart. When I was a Pharisee, when I was a legalist, when I was in religion, I couldn't see. There was a veil over my heart. But when I came to Christ, and every time I come to Christ, the veil is rent once again, and I see the Lord. And I behold the Lord. Second Corinthians 3 verse 18, that's one of the most landmark foundational scriptures. Please memorize it. That's how you change. I'll probably expand a little bit more on this tomorrow, Lord willing. That's how you are transformed. You don't get changed by looking at how bad you are. You get changed by looking at how glorious He is. You become what you behold. Please write that phrase down because this will transcend everything relating to Paul's future walk as a Christian. This is why worship is so important. This is at the very heart of the essence of the value and importance of true worship. Why? Because you become what you behold. The devil knows the same tactic, by the way, which is why billboards across America are filled with sexual innuendos, either overtly or inadvertently, whatever, you understand what I'm trying to say. He understands that if I can capture your eyes, I capture your heart. If I can get that guy looking at stuff at 3 o'clock in the morning that he shouldn't be looking at, he will become what he beholds. You are transformed. And so, Paul, now that you come to Christ, the blindness is removed. You're going from Pharisee to a child of God. 
The veil is rent. And Paul probably broke a whole another break, to be honest with you. Oh, my. Haven't you ever had that? How could I be so dumb? (laughs) How could I be so missing it? Well, that's the problem. And child of God, here's what the devil always tries to do, even the spirit-filled churches. You know what he's going to get you to do? Create your own religion. Oh, I came out of that thing. Well, I know you came out of that, but you have no idea how much it's ingrained. And before you know it, we can, we, while we don't have an order of worship, guarantee I can tell you pretty much what you do every Sunday. It might not be printed out in a bulletin like a liturgical service of denomination or whatever, but it's, it's there. And before you know it, membership? Membership. Where in the world does that come from? Who fabricated that idea? Well, we got to have membership because we got to vote. Vote. Where'd that come from? Show me verse, chapter, please. And so on and on it goes. And before you know it, uh, I could take you to a lot of churches right now who started out in spirit and are now in flesh, who started out in spirit and who are now religious. And there is a veil that continually drops over the people's hearts because whenever you come under any religion, it brings with it Darkness, ultimately deception, and a whole new bondage. What do you think a cult is? That's the ultimate expression. So what we're going to do is we're going to keep coming to Jesus. Hallelujah. We're going to keep beholding the Lord, presenting the Lord. And so Paul has his scales removed, 2 Corinthians 3. Then he is filled with the Holy Spirit. He then begins to establish a powerful relationship with the Holy Spirit. This will be after his relationship with Jesus Christ, the absolute most important thing in Paul's life was his relationship with the Holy Spirit. Totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. More on that later. And so he gets baptized with the Holy Spirit, obviously speaks in tongues. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, I speak in tongues more than you all. That was a crucial element of Paul's heart and life, daily, hours, daily, pressing in. Uh, he would pray in the Spirit, sing in the Spirit, and, and, and he gets water baptized. In verse 19, he took food, and he was strengthened. Now, in page 8 of your notes at the top there, and whoa, where in the heck is the time going? It's your fault. I hate when that happens, but it's your fault. You're too easy to speak to. Let's just read verses 19 to 22. Acts 9. Verse. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Now we read that verse, we have no idea the revolution firestorm this set off. Somebody say Sudden. He goes suddenly from chief persecutor of the church to a powerful proclaimer of Jesus Christ. He gets two reactions. The church is still scared to death and doesn't believe him. They think he's a plant, just trying to get in to find out more names. His fellow pharisaical brethren, Paul has become the consummate Benedict Arnold total betrayer. In other words, he's in no man's land, really. 
But he's there. He's so excited. He's so fired up. He's preaching Christ. He's proclaiming Christ. Wow, I had this experience. He really is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed. And they were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Paul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Almost overnight, the Old Testament opened up to him. He sees Isaiah 53. He goes all the way back to Genesis 3 and the, pro- the promise given to the woman about the s- serpent and, and, and the, the seed of the woman. I mean, all of a sudden it, be- it begins to unfold. Just like Stephen probably was articulating, but Paul could not receive it. He could not comprehend it. He totally rejected it. But Stephen would say similar things. Guys, you don't get it. He is throughout the Old Testament. He's always been there. A thread of salvation woven through the historical narrative of the Old Testament. You just can't see it because you're religious. You got a veil and you're blind. Well, now Paul sees it. And he begins to proclaim Christ. Now, if you notice there, and we'll close our session and have a break. Paul's apostolic conversion. Did you see what I said in verse 7 at the top of it? That, that, that quote that I have there, I, didn't, I forgot to say it, 18th century writer, I forget his name. He said, if you really consider, here's what he says, the conversion and apostleship of Paul, when duly considered, in other words, what he's saying there is, just take a few minutes and really think about this. Where this guy was, what happened to him, and where he went. Think about it. Consummate hater of Jesus Christ. Consummate follower of Jesus Christ. Just think about that. If you really think about that, you will come to this conclusion. It is a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity is true. What Paul is, from heaven's point of view, is trophy of trophies. Undeniable sign of supernatural sovereign grace at work. Arresting, filling, and sending a vessel. And I'm so with this man called Paul, I want you to imitate him. Look carefully at his life. That's why you're sitting here today. You know what you need to begin to pray? What I begin to pray more and more as I preach this, I get convicted every time I preach it. God, I want to encounter you afresh. I want to encounter you afresh. What? The reality. God, I want to be free of any religious ways that have seeped in like a hidden leaven that rob me and blind me. God, I want to encounter Jesus. Lord, I really want to know you. Lord, I want to hear you. I want to really speak for you accurately. You can't speak clearly unless you hear clearly. The church has a prophesying problem because the church is on mute. And the reason the church is on mute is because the church isn't hearing. And then you rely on others to hear for you, but that only means we're an echo, not a voice. And echoes under pressure always buckle. 
That's where backsliders go. Echoes, vertically bankrupt with God, totally dependent on others who they think is a voice. I can say a whole lot more about that. I don't have time. But you want to be a voice. Say, I want to be a voice. You don't want to be an echo. And here's the great privilege you have. John 10, as a sheep, by covenantal relationship, my sheep hear my voice. And yet when I travel around the body of Christ, the number one concern in God's people is I struggle with hearing the voice of God. That's your greatest privilege. Because if you hear, you follow. If you hear, you speak. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You're not an echo over-dependent on others. You are a voice. You are a voice. Hallelujah. I love it. Uh, So Paul is doing that. Now here, let's go finish this session with, uh, after Paul's conversion, this begins a lifelong passion to follow Christ. To know Him and to make Him known. That was pretty much at the center of Paul's walk. To know Him and to make Him known. To make Him known has to do with His do. To know Him has to do with His be, becoming. Now remember the iceberg principle. Your hidden life with Christ is much more important to God than your public life. To know Him, to know Him, to know Him is the cry of my heart. Spirit, reveal Him to to me. To know Him, to know Him is the cry of my heart. Spirit, reveal Him to me. To hear what He's saying brings life to my bones. To know Him, to know Him alone. You know what happens when you get life in your bones? That's where all life is in the marrow. And out of that flows the blood. And blood is created. And life is in the blood. To know Him and to make Him known. Here are five summary statements concerning Paul's conversion. Paul later, reflection. Galatians 1, 15 to 17. The supernatural purpose involved with it. I was set apart from my mother's womb. My conversion at 33 was the outworking of that separation in my mother's womb. And totally supernatural, totally sovereign. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Now he's going to cue in on Stephen. Wow. I'm a new creation. I'm a new creation. The body of Christ is a new creation. And as we said last night, just just write it down next to new creation. New creation needs new habitat. New habitat. When you got born again, I would assume, think of habitat as your lifestyle as an individual. I can pretty much guarantee you that when you got born again, some of your habitat immediately changed when you got born again. It's instinctive. A new species craves proper habitat. Why is that so important? Because it's only in proper habitat that the species can fulfill everything it was born to do. Remember the lion in the cage. He's alive, but he can't be a lion. He doesn't want to look at, he doesn't want to look at a picture of somebody killing a zebra. He wants to kill the zebra. Are you kidding me? He wants to take it out and have lunch quickly. All right, number three. First Timothy 1 verse 13. Paul recognized forever the awesome mercy of God in his conversion. 
He was the enemy of God. He wasn't seeking God. He thought he had found God. And I think many times when Paul reflected on his conversion, it brought him to tears. Oh my. I kill God's church. I beat his children. I messed with his bride. I ravaged his bride. Oh God. He was so grateful. He knew absolutely God had every right to send him to hell and not blink an eye. But instead, he realized, wow, I was chosen before the world's even created. And my relationship with God is not based on what I do. It's based on what he's done. It's not based on my performance. It's based on his performance. Say thank you, Jesus. That's the gospel. Number four, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, he saw the Lord. I want you to write this scripture down next to saw the Lord. Ephesians 1, verse 18. This is an apostolic prayer. This is what Paul prayed for his converts. I pray, I pray that the eyes of your heart be enlightened in order that you may know what you have received. You can't possess it unless you see it. This lines up with worship again. Ephesians 1 verse 18, one of my most favorite Paul verses. Pray that, you know what you should do? You should pray that every day for your life. God, open up my eyes. Let me see. Help me, Lord. And then number five, Philippians 3, verse 18, the radical depth of Paul's conversion where he declares in that, verse 8, I have forsaken, I have forsaken everything. I count it as dung in order that I may know him. Doesn't matter, good, bad. He goes on to say, forgetting what lies behind, I press on into him. Not only do you forget the bad mistakes of your past, you forget all the good stuff in your past because tomorrow's adventure is going to surpass even yesterday's victories. And so these things were in Paul's heart after this incredible apostolic conversion. Now, if you go back to Acts chapter 9, I want you to write this in. Uh, Between verse 22 and verse 23 something really powerful happens. I want you to understand a little bit about the book of Acts now. Luke is somewhat selective. He gives kind of a collage of pictorial whatever. He's telling a story, but there's quite a few gaps, and we need to put in the proper filling of what happened in those gaps. There's a time frame between verse 22 and verse 23. It's three years. It's three years, and if you want to write this word, if you have liberty to write in your Bible, you just write Arabia. Arabia. After this initial outburst of proclaiming Christ, Paul hears the Lord evidently, probably feeling something like this, Son, the church is really not believing you. Your fellow Pharisees hate you. Come away, my beloved, and let's hang out and get to know one another with your new set of ears, eyes, and with your born-again heart. 
And Paul disappears for three years. And we go into now on the next page of your note, which will be called Apostolic Preparation or the Hidden Years. This is crucial. This is important for each one of us. Let's take a five-minute break. Making sense? All right.